You are listening to the preaching ministry of Christ Church San Antonio. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.christchurchsa.com. Thank you for listening. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been around church for a while, you might have seen um, various websites that make fun of sometimes the announcements that you see in church bulletins. Um, Sometimes you can misread those, and it's somewhat humorous. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Here's some real church bulletin announcements. The Reverend Merriweather spoke briefly, much to the delight of the audience. That's a good one. Um, Here's another one. Irving Benson and Jesse Carter were married on October 24th in the church. So ends a friendship that began in their school days. Thirdly, this is my personal favorite. Don't let worry kill you off. Let the church help. And then a final one. This announcement read like this. At the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, what is hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. (laughs) You know, it's possible to misread something and its meaning. We do it all the time. We do it in church announcements. We do it in conversations we have in our life. We don't take things or words or events in the way that they were intended. And for many people, this is true with the central teaching of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, we misinterpret and misunderstand its meaning. How? Well, perhaps we accept it factually, but we think it was just sort of an anomaly of history or a random, interesting event that has no real relevance or significance for our lives now. Maybe that's how you think of the resurrection. Others of us might misinterpret the resurrection by seeing it as just a metaphor or a spiritual lesson. It is springtime after all, right? All things will come back to life that have passed. And no matter your view of the resurrection, if you've heard that view or if you have those views, what I want to communicate to you this morning is that the original sources, the New Testament and the writers of the New Testament, they make it very clear that to interpret the resurrection of Jesus in those ways is to misread it. It's to misinterpret it. It's to hear something that wasn't intended by the writers. And so today on Easter, what I want to do is just help us all see how the scriptures of the Christian faith present the real meaning of Jesus's resurrection. And here's the thing, from the viewpoint of the writers of the Bible, the resurrection is not just a random anomaly of history. The resurrection is actually a call to each one of us to reorient our entire lives around this event. All of the witnesses in the New Testament of the resurrection viewed it in that light. And so the question is, do you? 
Now this story comes to us at the very end of Luke's gospel. The very, uh, the actual fact of the resurrection, <clears throat> the event of it, is described in the first 12 verses of chapter 24. Luke then tells us about multiple instances where many eyewitnesses, women at the tomb, people on the road to Emmaus, and here disciples of Jesus who were locked in this upstairs room witnessed Jesus after he had been raised from the dead. And so as we study just for a couple of minutes this encounter between Jesus after his resurrection and his disciples, I wanna show you three things that the resurrection calls us to. And I want you to keep in mind that the resurrection is not just an isolated event that you can accept and say, that's interesting and move on. The resurrection is a call. And this story calls us to three things. It calls us to belief, the resurrection calls us to marvel, and thirdly, the resurrection calls us to hope. A call to belief, a call to marvel, and a call to hope. So let's look at this story just for a few minutes and think about those three things together. First, the resurrection is a call to belief. And that might be the most important thing to see about it. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you'll see that the writers of the New Testament present the resurrection as a summons to acknowledge the fact of the resurrection. It's something that actually happened and the significance of the resurrection. It's something that actually happened that actually changes everything about this universe. It's a fact and it's a significant fact, okay? This story shows us the fact of the resurrection. Jesus was physically alive again after he had died. He appears to the disciples there in verse 37 in this upper room that they are hiding in. We don't know everything there is to know about Jesus' resurrection body. Maybe he walked through a wall. We're not sure, but he shows up in the room. <clears throat> and the main point is that Jesus was recognizable to his friends after their initial shock wore off. Look at verse 39. We see he says to them, see my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost or a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then in verse 41, Jesus eats a meal in front of them. He's doing this to prove that his body is real. He can take in food and digest it. As a side note, it's very offensive to me that they give him a boiled fish. Seriously, he just dies for the sins of the world. He says, I've been dead for three days. I'm starving. And they give him a fish. But Jesus is loving and kind, so he eats it anyway. I would have wanted tacos or something a little better than fish, but Jesus eats a meal in front of them. He can take in food. The whole story bears the mark of the kind of testimony you see all over the scripture regarding Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is basically described like this. Hey, it happened. It doesn't make sense. We can't piece it all together, but it happened. This did not happen secretly. It did not happen in a corner. It was a public event with many witnesses. That's really the only explanation for some of the things that we see in the scripture. The only explanation for the resurrection of Jesus that makes sense is that it actually occurred. It's a well-attested historic fact. So part of what's happening here is that Luke wants to call us to belief, to see the truth and the credibility of the fact that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was put to death on a cross. He was dead for three days, and then he physically rose to new life. Some of you might accept that. 
You might like that idea, even if you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus. But we can't stop there. The New Testament doesn't just say the resurrection is a fact. The New Testament says the resurrection is a fact of ultimate significance. Think about it with me like this. What would it have taken for thousands of Orthodox Jewish people living in the first century? These people are highly religious and highly committed to their faith. What would it have taken for them to instantaneously change their most cherished beliefs about God and then to give the rest of their lives to propagating their new faith even though they were going to die for it? The only rational answer for that is that it took more than just being able to say, yeah, this is something that happened. The only reason they would do something that radical is if they believe the resurrection made an ultimate difference in their lives and an ultimate difference in history. They saw it, you see, as an event of ultimate significance. Why? Why was the resurrection so significant? Here's why. The resurrection means that Jesus has conquered death and therefore that Jesus is Lord. He said he would do it and he did it. The significance of the resurrection is that the resurrected Jesus demands the allegiance and the loyalty of all people because in his resurrection, he is proving that he is the true king. Listen, the, the resurrection is a bit of an either-or proposition. In fact, the Bible says again and again that if the resurrection is not true, then who cares? You can discard the rest of Christianity if the resurrection isn't true. It says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die if Jesus is not alive. The resurrection is an event of such significance that if it didn't happen, nothing else in Christianity matters. It holds the whole system together, so to speak. The resurrection is like a gauntlet. It comes to each one of us and it says, will you believe this or not? Will you base your life story around this or not? It is a bit of a black and a white issue. There's an old cartoon strip, uh, Calvin and Hobbes cartoon strip that I came across this week where Calvin is sitting in a math class at school and he and his classmates are going over math problem after math problem with his teacher and they take a break and the teacher asks if there were any questions and Calvin raises his hand and says, I have a question. What is the meaning of the universe? The teacher says, I don't really see that that's a relevant question, Calvin. And Calvin responds, well, I don't really see the point of doing any more math until we can get that question figured out. And you know, the resurrection of Jesus is something like that. Until we deal with it, we can't really fully deal with anything else. That's the Christian claim. That's why the resurrection is so central for disciples of Jesus Christ. And it's primarily a call for you to believe these things, to believe that it's a fact and to believe that it is an ultimately significant fact. But that's a scary thing. You know, I hope you can acknowledge that. No matter where you are faith-wise, you need to get to a place internally where you can say, I actually have a lot of reasons for the resurrection not to be true that I, I'm motivated by. And the reason for that, the reason sometimes we don't want it to be true is because if this is true, the resurrection and belief in it is threatening. 
It's threatening to us because if this is true, it means that we do not have final control over our lives. It means that if Jesus is alive and Jesus is the king, then you and I don't ultimately get to decide what to do with our life. If Jesus is the Lord, and if we should submit to him because he conquered death and because he proves that he's the king, then we should submit everything in our lives to him. And listen, that's a threatening thing. We need to just admit that. Everything is submitted to Jesus if this is true. Your vocation is submitted to Jesus. Your money, your relationships, your sexuality, your hobbies, your time, everything. So if you're hearing the call to belief, and finding it threatening, then I actually want to tell you, you were on the right track. You're understanding it properly. But I want you to know also that giving these things to Jesus as Lord is actually what will free you. It's what will free you to be your true self and to live a full life. Now, for those of you already in faith, if you're a Christian, the resurrection and its significance is actually a place for reassurance. You know, when you doubt... And by the way, don't let a Christian tell you they don't have doubts. If they tell you that, they're either lying or they're naive. We all have doubts. And when I doubt and when we doubt, the resurrection is a call back to assurance. When we're wondering, is this worth it? Why am I prioritizing church and the Bible and faith so much again? Why am I doing that? You know, I wonder if this is really true or if I've been deceived. When we have those sorts of thoughts to ourselves, remember the resurrection. Jesus rose and therefore, everything is different. It's the bedrock, the foundation of our faith. The resurrection is many things, but one thing it undoubtedly is, is a call for each one of us to believe it, to believe that it happened and to believe that it's significant. Secondly, the resurrection is a call to marvel, a call to marvel. Look back at the story. Look at the words Luke uses to describe the reaction of the disciples to seeing Jesus. Just skim through that. They're startled, they're frightened, they're troubled. And then there's that beautiful phrase of verse 41. They disbelieved for joy. They're in sort of a dumbstruck awe. They're in wonder. They are marveling that this could have happened, that this could be true. Why are they marveling? Well, can we put ourselves in the story for a minute? Listen, they're marveling because they have just had a life-changing encounter with the man who said he was going to die and then come back to life and who now they see has died and come back to life. Marilyn Robinson is one of my favorite authors and in her novel Home, she writes this. It is possible to know the great truths without feeling the truth of them. And that's why I think it's significant for us to think about the fact that the resurrection is a call to marvel. Listen, many of us are far too familiarized with the resurrection. We've heard the story so many times that it has, it has become ordinary. And we've lost our sense of its wonder and power. And the truth is this, friends, the more you are around the church and church people, the more prone you are to lose your sense of marvel at what is really happening here. And the danger is that if you aren't marveling at the resurrection, you're treating it as if it is merely an indifferent fact in your universe. 
And remember, we just saw the scriptures teach that if you miss the resurrection, it's a non-starter for everything else too. The tenor of this passage and the tenor of the whole story of the Bible, the tenor of it is that, is that you, can, you can reject the resurrection. You can discard it as something that isn't persuasive. You can accept it and have it change everything about your life and your purpose, but you cannot treat it as something that's just indifferent to you. It cannot just be a random fact that you find marginally interesting that you don't really take the time to do justice to internally. The resurrection doesn't allow that, you see. Part of what it's doing is calling you to ask, what is it that you marvel at? What evokes a sense of wonder in your life? The story of the resurrection asks that question of each of us. And the truth, the truth is that what we marvel at is what we are living for. What we marvel at, what captivates and compels our souls is what we functionally and practically worship. You might say, I don't worship anything. Yes, you do. You worship whatever makes you most awestruck. You live for what you long for. And so it's a key question for all of us. And the call of the good news, the call of the gospel is this. If you think you understand the resurrection and yet you don't think it is the most beautiful news you have ever heard, you can be certain that you do not yet fully understand. The resurrection is a call to marvel. It's a call to belief. And then finally, I think this story shows us that the resurrection is a call to hope. Look back at the story. Let me give you a bit of background. Remember these disciples that Jesus appears to, these are men and women who are in a place of dark hopelessness. They are hiding from the government, the Roman authorities in fear. They're thinking they're gonna do to us what they did to Jesus, okay? They're trying to recover from having just had their worlds exploded in the murder of Jesus, They're asking themselves, was this all a lie? This movement that I dedicated the last three years of my life to. And they're completely uncertain of what they are going to do next. They're in a place of hopelessness. They're in dire straits here. And Jesus appears to them in his resurrected body. He calls them to believe as we've seen. They marvel at him as we've seen. But there's also a thread. There's a thread of new hope running through this story that I find to be captivating and beautiful. Where do you see it? Well, well, we saw already that Jesus tells them to touch him, right? Um, And the reason he's telling them to touch them in part, to touch him in part is because he presents a piece of evidence that he has been raised from the dead. But notice that he says in particular, I want you to touch my hands and my feet. Why touch him there? Well, Clearly, because that is where his scars are. That is where they pierced him, through the wrists and through the ankles. And part of what seems to be going on here is Jesus wants them to see, hey, this is really me. I have actual flesh and bones. The same one who was crucified is the one who has now been raised. But there's more going on. Jesus is not just asking his disciples to touch his scars because he wants to prove to them evidentially that he's alive. 
And I want you to think about this with me because I find this to be really interesting. The new resurrection body of Jesus bears the mark of former wounds. Jesus' new perfect body is a scarred body. Scars make it into God's new world, into the world of resurrection. Jesus has them touch his scars so that they will believe it is really him, but also so that they will see that Jesus understands what it is to know pain. He knows what it means to know suffering, to know hurt, to know death. Jesus is embedding hope into a people who suffer and struggle. He is saying, I am one with you in your pain and your suffering and even in your own deaths. Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's teaching each one of us as well that when we connect to him through faith, we connect in a real way, a mysterious way to his death and resurrection. And Jesus also unites himself to us and is truly with us in our own hurts and in our own deaths. Listen, Jesus has been scarred and come through to the other side in resurrection to a new and indestructible life. And he has the disciples touch his scars. And this is recorded for us in the scriptures so that all of us will know that he will be with us emphatically loving us as a great high priest when we suffer, when we feel pain, when we are hurt, wounded, and broken, and even when we die. He will actually bring us through to the other side. Jesus saying, look at my scars, means that he knows you have scars too. He knows what it is like to suffer. What a God. That's amazing. The God of the universe indwelling Jesus of Nazareth sympathizes with humanity in all of our many weaknesses. As one theologian puts it, he hears every half-breathed sigh. Find that in any other religion or worldview. God is one with us in our pain and truly understands our pain. And most gloriously, he promises to redeem. Listen, he promises to redeem our pain. He will redeem our suffering. Think about it. Because of his scars... Jesus is infinitely more valuable and precious. Because of the massive injustice committed against him in his death, he brought about the renewal of the world. So when we are connected to him through trust, we can be fully assured that our own sufferings and our own scars are redeemable to a greater glory and purpose. One of my favorite authors, Henri Nouwen, writes this. The resurrection is God's way of revealing to us that nothing that belongs to God will ever go to waste. 
Love is stronger than death. Think about your scars with me this Easter Sunday morning. Where have you been hurt? We can all perhaps look at physical scars and remember pain. But we also all have scar tissue on our souls, on our hearts. Because living in this wounded world means that we are going to take shots from time to time, right? Some of us have been left behind. Some of us have been abused. Some of us have been molested. Some of us have been ridiculed. Some of us have been denied basic rights. Some of us have been oppressed. Some of us have been mocked. Listen, the resurrection says that Jesus sees those wounds and understands them. Look at his scars and see that they now serve a greater glory. And when you can see that in faith, you can also begin to understand that the same thing is true of your scars. When you connect to Jesus with faith, really that's the meaning of the resurrection. That's the meaning of the Christian news. That's the meaning of this whole story of the world. Jesus came to take our scars, the scars of this world on himself and was raised to life so that they will be redeemed to a greater glory. Can you find hope in that? In the Chronicles of Narnia, book one, chronologically book one, the, the magician's nephew is the title. We read about a boy named Diggory. And C.S. Lewis tells us that Diggory has a mom who is very, very sick. And he also has an uncle that he lives with. His uncle's name is Andrew. And Andrew is a mean old magician that has these magic rings that Diggory and his friend Polly steal. And through the use of these rings, they make it into magical worlds to try to find something to help and heal his mom. Diggory and Polly get into all manner of trouble, but eventually they run into the most famous figure in all of the stories, the lion, Aslan. And Diggory learns of Aslan's power, and he approaches Aslan initially with very mixed motives. Lewis actually tells us that the lion was not at all the sort of person one could try to make bargains with. And so Diggory, although he initially wants to try to use the lion to get him to heal his mom, thinks better of it. So he asks Aslan if there's anything the lion can do that will help his mother, but he doubts He's a skeptic because the lion is so ferocious and beastly and fierce. And then Lewis writes this late in the book that summarizes, in a sense, the whole story. At the point when Diggory asks Aslan to help his mother get better, here's what Lewis says. Up till then, Diggory had been looking at the lion's great front feet and the huge claws on them. Now... In his despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment, he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. Aslan does eventually give him an apple from a magical tree to give to his mother to eat. 
And at the end of the story, he makes his way back into the real world and gives the apple to his mother, knowing that it will take some time for its healing powers to work and still doubting. And at the very end of the story, Lewis writes of Diggory, the boy, that he hardly dared hope. But when he remembered the face of Aslan, he did hope. The resurrection of Jesus tells you this. You can look into the face of Jesus and see his tears. So big and so vivid because he understands even more than we do our own hardships and sympathizes with them. And yet, and yet there aren't only tears. There are tears that have passed through the darkness of death into new and eternal life. And so in those moments of darkness in your life, when you doubt, when you worry, when you're afraid, when you question where God has gone, remember the face of Jesus. When you don't dare hope, remember the face of Jesus and believe. Remember the face of Jesus and marvel. Remember the face of Jesus and hope because he is risen and he will come again. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the good news of the gospel. We praise you and give you glory that you've told us this story, a true story that reminds us so much of ourselves. It, it reminds us that we are prone to skepticism and doubt. It reminds us that we marvel at things that can't really give what they promise. It reminds us that we often find ourselves in hopelessness, looking for a way out. And so this Easter God, will you help us to see that this ancient story, that the Christian message can actually provide us with what we need and long for? Because Jesus is alive, death has been conquered. Because Jesus is alive, there is a, a sure and abiding and steadfast hope. God, we struggle to believe these things in the midst of a world that has fallen and seems so ruined. And so we pray that you, through the Holy Spirit, would work a faith and a trust within us even this morning. We ask that we would respond to this story in the way that the scriptures call us to respond, in the way that you call us to respond, that we would respond to your call to belief by trusting that this happened, that it happened and it, it actually has changed everything. It means that when we die, death does not have to be victorious. Jesus is victorious. And so when we connect to him, we have victory in him. God, help us to do that today. We need your help because we can't do it on our own. We run to other things to medicate and mediate our struggles. So will you come and be a present and faithful God here today? We trust you and you alone. We want to come to you and bring you our doubts and our worries. We want to come to you and bring our fears and our struggles. And we ask that you would receive them because you know what it's like to go through hard times and you have come through them to the other side of a new and indestructible life. Help us to connect to you in that way through trust and faith wrought by your spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.